sometimes it may not be the places you have to find a new place where you're going to find your audience, right? You're going to find places that are not the traditional, that are not the obvious places to show up. Then people start to find it. Today's episode is sponsored by the Inspired Art Pricing Workshop. If you want to confidently sell more art using a proven art pricing formula, you want to check out shulmanart.com forward slash workshop. And for a limited time, you can even get it at 70% off. It's the Inspiration Place podcast with artist Miriam Shulman. Welcome to the Inspiration Place podcast, an art world insider podcast for artists by an artist, where each week we go behind the scenes to uncover the perspiration and inspiration behind the art. And now, your host, Miriam Shulman. Well, hey there, my passion maker. It's Miriam Shulman, and you're listening to episode 152 of the Inspiration Place podcast. I am so grateful that you're here. Today, we're talking all about doubts and doubters. In this episode, you'll discover how to turn criticism into motivation, why curating the complete experience of your product is important to its ultimate success and why learning builds confidence. Today's guest is the founder and CEO of Hint Inc., best known for its award-winning Hint Water, the leading unsweetened flavor water. Her first book, Undaunted, Overcoming Doubts and Doubters, was released October 2020 and is now a Wall Street Journal and Amazon bestseller. Please welcome to the inspiration place, Kara Golden. Hello. Well, hey there. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to be here. My daughter, who's 23, she was super impressed because she knows all about Hint Water. Like that was something like she knew. My my husband wasn't quite sure until I showed him the back of your book and it's like, Jamie Diamond blurbed her. She must be a big deal. <laughs> I I think so. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I love it. Well, it's very nice to be here. And by the way, you do not look like you have a 23-year-old daughter. So uh, we're I'm, about the same age. It's it's, it's it's the Zoom filter. Don't you know about the Zoom filter? <laughs> I do. I do know about the Zoom filter, but I look, it amazes me that I have three in college right now, one in high school and three in college. It's insane. Yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations. It was fun reading your book because we're about the same age. It's like, yeah, I, I remember when we used to meet people in New York with just like a slip of paper with like something scratched on it. Like, how did we do that with no self? Like, how did we how did we get together? It was like unbelievable. I know it's insane. I mean, right? Like now you can sit there and text people and say, hey, I'm here or I'll be there in five minutes. I mean, before it was just, you'd sit there and wait and wait. Right. And then God forbid your friend was 40 minutes late, which would happen to me. I would bring a book because like you wouldn't know, yeah. are they going to show up? Are you going to leave? And then they show up and where are you going to go anyway? Because you have no idea. Or restaurant reservations, right? I mean, I guess you could call them, but generally you just went there, right? And you waited, <laughs> right? We used pay phones, which my kids have right. no idea what that is. Yeah. So Kara, I did want to talk to you first about your mom, your, your late mother, who was an art teacher and how that was for you growing up with an artist mother, since most of my audience are artists. You know, it's, it's crazy. Her name was Kay, Kathleen, but she went by Kay. And you know, it's, it's interesting. I didn't realize until much later, I think 
the benefits of writing a book to kind of realizing sort of where she came from and, and what she did. I mean, she grew up in a little town and just outside of Minneapolis. And I mean, this is back in the 40s. I mean, she's she's a Midwestern girl who went to university and most of her friends were not doing that. And she was an art history major, you know, at a crazy time in our in our lifetime. And she just loved art and she dreamed of art. She didn't live in, you know, New York City or someplace where there was an incredible museum, right? But her father and and my grandfather, who I never had a chance to meet, was actually a printer. And so she spent a lot of time, you know, probably watching him in printing, but she was always doing something around art. And like I said, I mean, she graduated with an art history major and and she was interested in kind of the background of, of art, but also really interested in how she could take the story of artists and bring them to life and where it was easy for people to recognize. And, and one of the things I remember as a kid that she did, she took some time off from actually working while she was raising five children. And we moved from Minneapolis to Phoenix, Scottsdale area when I was just a little kid. So she used to substitute teach in an art class in some of the public schools. And one day she came up with this idea to teach art in the schools. Now imagine your your kid hearing that your mom is starting this program in the public schools to actually teach art. I remember thinking, okay, so wait, what are you doing? You're going to my school, you're going to come into my classroom and she her response was, well not necessarily. What I want to do is go into the schools and teach about the classics. So I want people to be able to understand what a Picasso is. Why did he create the way that he created versus a Monet versus a Renoir or whatever? And so to this day, she did start that whole series in the Scottsdale school system. And, you know, this is 1970s, right? She's going wow. from class to class. And people let her do it. It was, it ended up to be not just in the art classes, but she ended up reaching out to homeroom teachers and saying, Hey, during the breaks, can I come in? It'll just take 15, 20 minutes. But she decided that she was going to have a hard time making money and it just became, you know, really challenging. In many ways, she was an entrepreneur, right? She was creating this idea and taking it into the schools. But you know, the thing that really hit me hard was when she passed away and we were sitting at her funeral, people came to me and told me that story that your mom actually taught me about art. And how many art classes had they taken, right, in, in elementary school? But the fact that they really equated art and what they knew about art with my mom's program that she had started. It's amazing. Right? And I wish I could get one of the books that she created. So she would ask people to create these books and go and, you know, pull like sheets out of different magazines to say, is somebody looking at this artist and taking clues from them in order to create the way that they create? And so she had this idea in her head that was way ahead of what anybody was teaching. Yeah, definitely. I mean, what is in throughout the, the school system is how to create art, 
But what is missing, and it's wonderful your mother brought that program into the school district. We had something similar in my daughter's school district, but it's very dependent on there being somebody who wants to advocate that program in our district as well. The person passed away, and I think the program may have gone with them. But the idea is teaching people how to look at art and how to think about art and how aesthetics work which definitely came through in your story about how you created your product is how you look at a product aesthetically, not just the label, but an experience. And I, which I think is a great segue to really to talk about the aesthetic of, of what you've created. Yeah. I, you know, I think for me, I've always believed that for me to spend time with anything, whether they're people or their products or a sport, I have to enjoy it, right? It starts there. In order to have an experience with it, you have to want to engage in some way, right? Like I always share this piece with entrepreneurs and also investors is that if you are an entrepreneur in my industry, beverage, and you're trying to sell a product, it's not impossible to sell the first product, right? The first bottle. Maybe people want to have trial. They see it. Maybe they see a friend drinking it or whatever. But to actually buy it again, you have to have other elements that allow the consumer to want to engage. You know, whether that is a product, like I said, a sport, a service, you know, a piece of art. There's a tremendous amount of feeling that goes along with that. And I think talking about my mom, I I learned it without her preaching. It was just kind of a thinking that went on in our house, even just thinking about enjoying something or purchasing something or what whatever it is. And so I really do believe that that is that's where it gets sticky, right? That's where consumers want to you know, spend more time with it is when they really appreciate the aesthetic part of it. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to talk about, so it's one thing to say, I want to create a new soda. And you actually were doing something that nobody else was doing. Mm -hmm. One thing that I feel was really powerful that would help a lot of artists is that you received a lot of criticism. Not everyone thought it was such a good idea. Like right now we're looking at, oh, yes, of course, it's a wonderful idea because we see the end result. But take us back to the beginning when you were up against a lot of doubters and how you kept believing in what you were doing to keep on going. Yeah. So I started my career actually in media and then I went into tech and I I think I was probably in my career most known for what I was doing in tech. I was at a company called America Online and had started their e-commerce and shopping partnerships and many stories in, in there throughout the years of meeting Jeff Bezos when he was helping him build a bookshelf when he was just a bookseller, right? Not buying a $500 million yacht. I mean, he was just a scrappy guy just trying to sell books and make a living. It really stemmed from this need and desire to get healthy that caused me to really want to create, want to start my own beverage company, but also seeing that there was this white space that was no one else was doing. So when I gave up my diet soda, Diet Coke in particular, that's when I tried to drink plain water. I had heard for years, drink water, drink water. I grew up in Arizona, should have been drinking a lot more water, but just didn't. And what I realized was that 
my stickiness with water as as a whole was not there because I didn't love the taste. And I think in a beverage, you have to love the taste. And so that's why I didn't drink it. It wasn't that I didn't know that I should drink it. I didn't do it. And I thought for a minute why I didn't do it. So that's when I did a little test. I sliced up some fruit, threw it in water. And I said, aha, this got me to drink water. I don't need to drink my diet soda anymore. And I was trying to move away from diet sweeteners. This is 16 years ago. And I looked for a product on the shelf because of convenience. I thought I will actually go and buy a water with just fruit in it if it's in a package where I can go and purchase it and it's easy. Otherwise, I'm buying fruit. I'm buying, I have to cut it up. It goes through this whole process, which was hard. And it was one that I didn't want to. It wasn't that I didn't want to engage with it. I didn't want to use my time. Too much work. Too much work. And so that's where I was. And I went shopping and looking for, for this product and it wasn't there. I think at that point, I thought, well, while I'm not working, I this wasn't a side hustle idea. People have asked me that. For me, I left tech. I was taking a couple of years off to be a mom with my then three kids. And that's when I wanted to solve this problem for myself. I went to the grocery store, couldn't find the product and thought, I'll just go make it. Right. It sounds great. Right. And maybe on a Thursday, you're thinking, I'm going to just go and I'm going to go and create it. And then the doubts start to come in, right? When people are saying, well, how are you going to do that? You've never been in the beverage industry. How do you know how to get a product on the shelf at your local grocery store? How do you, what are the margin? All of these questions. I understood the business side of it. I could go and dig and try and find this information. But then when the doubts start really piling in, after you've kind of made this commitment to it at this point, not just to yourself, but to a few friends, you're thinking, well, I'm smart. I can go figure this out. But then you get in your car and you go to the grocery store and you try and figure it out. And then people are like, oh, have you ever launched a beverage before? You know. So then the doubters right, come in and they pile on in your own thinking of thinking, I can't do it. In uh, the art world, you've got people, you're thinking, well, is it quite right? And then people say, yeah, no, I don't really like it. Uh," You know, And then once you actually get it on the shelf, then you have a few customers who come in and say, it's exactly what I was looking for. I wanted an unsweetened flavored water too. And it's those customers, right? It's those people who appreciate your art. It doesn't matter how many people don't want right. what you have or have the doubts, right? Because you've got that relationship. You've got that stickiness with just a few of these customers. Now you've got to find where these people are, right? You've got to find your audience. You've got to find your people and grow them in a way. And that is the hardest part, right? In any industry is to find those people and find those people that understand. And maybe, you know, just sort of another piece that would be very, very relatable is that when you have an idea for something that you think is so unique and so different, for me, I I never really thought about Hint as, I thought about it as starting a new product and starting a new company, but I hadn't really taken a step back to say, I'm launching a new category, which is exactly what I did. And it's probably the same thing in the art world where you you launch something that no one else is doing you're ahead 
of so many other people. They have to catch up to it, right? They have to figure out why isn't anyone else doing it? Why haven't I seen anything like this before? In the beverage industry, when that was happening to me, I had to not only convince the customer, but I had to convince you know, grocery buyers who were my gatekeepers to actually getting it on the shelf. Maybe in the case of art, you're you know, trying to convince not only buyers, but gallerists. also gallerists to put it up. I mean, it's the exact same thing. And they don't want to put it up because there's nobody else doing it. You know, From my perspective, I was like, but that's the point. I'm doing it. I'm, I'm it. I've created this thing. And that's why it's, it's going to be a home run. Most of the grocery buyers would pass because they would say, it's not really big enough. That's why not a lot of people are doing it. They would not allow me to be the mm-hmm. only one and give me space, give me the, the environment that I needed to go and find those customers. And so it was this challenge that I didn't know how to solve. And nobody was really 16 years ago kind of talking to me about categories and how how hard it was and how difficult it was and all the you know roadblocks and a lot of what I even talk about in, in the book and the purpose for me writing the book, because it really does happen in lots of different industries. And the challenge really for people who are living it and who are the creators is that you've got to wait for the customer to catch up to where or the gallery, whoever it is that is your gatekeeper to catch up to where you're you're at. And that's really the biggest challenge. So last week we had on Kendra Hall, her book is Stories That Stick. And she talks about the four stories that every business needs. And so at the end of the interview, I said, well, you got to listen to Kara's interview because she's got the four stories. And the first one that we're talking about right now is that founder story. Your founder story about why you created this product is so compelling and so strong, not just from, I mean, even when I'm reading the book, I'm like telling my daughter, remember that hint water you were always drinking? It's time to start drinking it again. Yeah. (laughs) And my son, it was hilarious because I was thanking Kara before we hit record for, she sent me some nice product, which was gone in 24 hours. My 20-year-old was like, oh, that was really smart. Because the next day, we were like at the store looking for it. He says, and you know you're going to be talking about it on the podcast. I was like, that was super smart what you did. I was like, yes, that's what I'm paying the college bucks for you to observe and figure out. I love it. When was 9-11 in all of your decision to take time off from work? Because that played a big part in my... I was taking a break from Wall Street. And when 9-11 happened, that was kind of to me like, I'm not going back to that. That's a really good question. We live in the Bay Area and we used to live in New York. And so we had moved to San Francisco in 1994. And and I started my career in New York and went to the towers many times. I had friends that, you know, a friend who actually left the American Express building, literally like was in the path train. I mean, there, you know, there's many, many stories. And I know people who perished as you, I'm sure did as well. And I think watching it from San Francisco, I felt very helpless. My husband's family still lives there and has a lot of family and his father just retired, but he's a doctor. And so I think, you know, for him, he was at ground zero, like all of those things. And I just kind of coming out of that. And I was on maternity leave. I kept thinking, am I really doing what I want to be doing? Not that there's anything wrong with what I'm doing, but am I really, really passionate about it? My answer was, I don't know. 
I'm good at what I do, but does that mean that I'm really passionate about it? And I don't know that I would have sort of had that kind of stop and think about it moment unless there was, you know, 9-11. I think, you know, the pandemic for a lot of people I've talked to was a reset. It's the same thing. It like lifted a veil on whatever wasn't working in your life. What you described just now, Kara, was exactly how I felt. I was I was not exactly on maternity leave. I kind of had left, but in my mind, I was going back sometime. And when 9-11 happened, that was like, uh, no, thank you. That's my sign from the universe. That was exactly the same thing for me that I, I thought, you know, here I have these really young kids and am I actually, am I doing not only what I want to be doing, but if there's no tomorrow, am I doing what my kids will say is powerful? Maybe they don't perish and I'm the one that perishes. Am I, you know, here I was going on a plane every single week and thinking, you know, I was not on that United plane. I was going to DC from San Francisco. And I thought, you know, you have these moments where you really start thinking about it. There's a lot of synergies between the two of them. They're very different, but I think that there's a lot of synergies. And it's something I've talked about on interviews for Hint specifically is that I think Gen Z and the maybe the lower end of the millennials too, but I think Gen Z's I was pregnant with my 19-year-old. While he obviously doesn't remember 9-11, he knows all the stories. He knows that you know it was bad. He saw the 2008-2009 financial crisis, right? He saw a lot of things that we didn't really see in our lifetime that they saw. And I think that part of what I see Gen Zers doing as they're entering the workforce, they want to do what they're interested in yeah. because there aren't guarantees. Right. You think everything's fine. And then suddenly look at WeWork, right? You've got dude behaving badly and lots of things implode. Because suddenly building your own company or being an artist or whatever it is you're passionate about, right. suddenly it's not as risky as staying at in a job. Right. Right. That the job, there's no certainty, there's no guarantee. And Kara, what you're saying is absolutely true because I forget where I saw this, so I can't quote it. Maybe it was on LinkedIn. People are right now quitting in record numbers. Yeah. That's like something you can look up. Like it's like the quit rate is off the charts right now. Well, and I think that it's also they're figuring out that they do have options, right? And I mean, part of the reason why I think the quit rate is going on though too is that we're writing checks. You know, when that gig is up, which I think is it has to come. I mean, I do not think that the Biden administration, I mean, I I just don't know that they can because that's the only way to fuel the economy. I have a girlfriend of mine who runs finance for a car dealership, one of my best friends from college in Las Vegas. And she said that pretty much everybody who's buying cars in Las Vegas is walking in, they have no job, they make more money, and they will very soon, when they're not getting those checks, the cars will be repoed. Mm. It will implode. I do not think, as much as I love the Biden administration being in there, I don't think people know what to do. I think it's going to be really, really frightening. You know, when car sales in Vegas go from 100 a day down to repoing them and two a day, that's bad. It's like the big short part two. It is. Yeah. It is. And it's coming. I don't know. I think you got to rip the band aid. You know, you can't find people to do 
jobs. Oh, I mean, no. Like, I wanted to plan a, we're, we're back in New York. Let's have lunch party with all, with all my entrepreneur yeah, friends. Forget it. You can't do anything because the restaurants are open, but they don't have service people. I mean, we went, my husband and I went out for margaritas the other night. Boo, woo, woo, like big deal. And they close at eight o'clock on a Friday night. I'm like, wait, what? Right. Uh, how can you close it? Right. You don't have staff. No. This is crazy. Yeah. There are people quitting because they know that they can get a check. I think when they realize after a while and they're not getting the check, they're going to be like, wait, what the heck am I doing here? So we talked about how you had this very strong founder story, but what was very clear as well is how much the customers did become a big part of building your experience with the brand and growing your business. Can you say a little more about that? The doubters, right? It's, it's real. It's real for people. And I, when I share the story with founders, creators, entrepreneurs, I get it, right? And, and I think the challenge is, is that you know, that voice in your head, especially when you've got the gas being piled on by the doubters that are out there. But then when you get that relationship with the consumer, when you can have some kind of feedback with the consumer who is sharing what you've created in your, in your life, in your kitchen, and your, oftentimes they don't even know what your why is yet, right? That they've just come in contact with it, but they want to understand why did this come to be? For me, it, it also kind of satisfied my own curiosity because what I started hearing was their story and that stickiness and that connection of, for example, one of the first customers that I heard from shared his story about how he was looking for a drink like Hint for many, many years that was fruit and water with no sweeteners in it because he had this disease called type 2 diabetes. And it was the first time that I had ever heard of type 2 diabetes. I remember saying to him, I've heard of type 1 diabetes, but I've never heard of type 2 diabetes. He called the customer service line. We had an 800 number and an email on the bottle, which was very tech. It wasn't typical of what, of what people did. And I was, don't tell anyone, but I was the only customer service agent at the time. So I picked up the phone and was able to have this dialogue with this consumer. But I guess what I realized is that although I didn't have type 2 diabetes, I related to it, right? And I felt like there was this purpose there was this meaning that I wanted an unsweetened flavored water because I felt like I didn't want to have all those sweeteners and I had some health issues, not yet type 2 diabetes, but it all kind of rolled up into the same thing where when you're looking for a product together and you're frustrated that you can't find it, suddenly you have this thing that brings you together and you're interested in it. It's a very, very powerful thing, right? It was at that point when I started realizing that we actually had a nice size audience, sadly, of people who were challenged with this disease. And if you remember 16 years ago, I mean, it was like one and a half to 2% of the population was very tiny, had type 2 diabetes. And yet I was hearing about it mm. a lot. And I thought if I can just find more of those people and help them solve their problem, then they will help my brand to grow. And, you know, down the road, I mean, how we got over the challenge of getting into stores was 
you know, I call myself an accidental entrepreneur. I call myself an accidental beverage executive because I did have moments where those doubts started to pile on. I had, you know, so many meetings with grocery buyers who were sharing with me that, you know, this isn't going to go anywhere. If it was really a category, then some of the big ones would have, you know, the big soda companies would have come out with a product like that. They wouldn't accept the fact that I was bringing something new that people liked and enjoyed because it was still so small. And so that's when I actually was being recruited for a role in tech at Google. The company, Google, was still you know, fairly small. And I remember meeting with somebody who I knew from my tech days, finally kind of describing to him why what I've been doing and why I, I'm sort of on the fence as to whether or not I should continue trying to build this beverage company, or maybe I should you know, really entertain this role at Google. And obviously he didn't want somebody, you know, we had a friendship even before this meeting, but he didn't want somebody that wasn't hundred percent committed. And so he looked at me and he said, you know, I think it's pretty cool what you're doing. You're doing it because you have a purpose. I think it's awesome that you figured this out and you should actually speak to this guy, Charlie, who runs this new thing that we're starting called micro kitchens inside of Google. And we're going to be stocking you know, food, but maybe we'll stock drinks too. He didn't even know what he was doing at that point. And again, I just followed up because you know he was a friend giving me an entree into somebody. And I just thought, I don't want to piss him off. So that's what I'll do. But it's interesting because that's how we ended up growing. You know, the most important reason why I, I share the story with you too is that sometimes it may not be the places you have to find a new place where you're going to find your audience, right? You're going to find places that are not the traditional, that are not the obvious places to show up. Then people start to find it. We started finding people inside of Google when we started you know, selling lots and lots, Google became our largest grocery store, even though they weren't really a grocery store. And we had employees who were going into stores for us and saying, why don't you carry hints? Mm. I mean, it was just the opposite, right? Of what we had ever experienced. We didn't do it intentionally, but what we saw was that by going where our customers ultimately were, it was sort of the reverse. So finding those zones where you can stand out, you know, another piece on the Google example is that they didn't have any other beverages in there for the first two years. Because it was just, yeah. And we were, I mean, it was the reverse of what happened inside of grocery stores where we had mostly Coke and Pepsi and then maybe there was a bottle of hint, this lonely little bottle that just got lost in the sea. It didn't have any presence, right? The reverse at Google. They were like, do you guys own this company? Do you own a percentage? I mean, what? Are, no, it just helps our employees drink more water. That was it. I mean, it was kind of depressing, frankly, after two years that they started adding other beverages, but we got runway. That's when people started to, you know, 
recognized our our brand and that's when we started to go into more and more stores so finding those places where you show up a little differently i think is is really the moral of the story on that i like to talk about when you're selling art there needs to be and the art is your product whether it's your book your artwork your flavored water you really need to have the belief triad which is you believe in yourself which you so did you were like with steel not listening to the doubters you believe in your product, which is your art, what you're putting out there. And then the third piece, which is something a lot of people don't talk about, is you believed in the customer. Yeah. And you believed what you could offer that customer. Right. Because what I hear from a lot of artists is that there's the doubts about themselves. There's the doubts about their art. But what I hear that stops them more than anything else is doubting that that audience is there, doubting that they will pay for art, doubting that they value art, doubting that they will value what it is that they do. And what really carried you through to the success is that belief in the customer being there. Yeah, it helps when you have a dialogue with the customer. I think that that is the thing that Again, we kind of did by accident that I, you know, suggest to any creator out there is if you have a way for your customer to give you feedback, to, you know, have that connection. And I think so often people rely on the gatekeepers, right? That their feedback versus actually having that direct, you know, relationship in some way. And you know what's interesting? When I was running AOL's e-commerce and shopping, thinking back in the 90s around direct-to-consumer was that, I mean, many retailers feared it, right? Because they thought, I've already got all these stores. I've already got a catalog. Why would I need to have this you know, online way for people to shop? And the answer really is the consumer and the direct relationship with the consumer. It's the way that people are communicating, right? I mean, it's the instant gratification. It's the ability to, it doesn't mean that you have to answer immediately. It means that they have to be able to get to you in some way to ask some kind of questions, hear from you more because they want to be a part of your story. That's what it boils down to. Of course, you'll always have the haters, right? You'll always have you know, the hecklers or whatever that will be there. But when you find those people that feel moved in some way by what you're doing, that it's much more powerful. It gives you this energy and it gives you this armor, right? To go and and take on whether it's your own doubts or the doubters or the really, really difficult days that you have to say, now, wait a minute, I can't throw the towel in. I can't stop doing what I'm doing. The thing that I need to figure out, and another question that I share in the book is, when you get stuck, say, what can I do? Like, what can I do? And when you present that question, it is rare that you say, I can't do anything, right? Mm -hmm. There's usually something that you can do. That's not to say that there aren't situations where it's beyond your control because you're always going to have those. I mean, during the pandemic, galleries were closed, right? But that's just another example of why you should have another avenue to be able to have the direct connection with the consumer. And I think that if nothing else, um, what the pandemic has taught everybody is, is having that relationship with that consumer is critical when things are beyond your control. 
100%. And also, I want to encourage all those artists out there, especially now that we're entering post, can we really say that now, post-pandemic, that we're now that we're entering back into real life, that those in-person shows that we we haven't done. Now, I'm all about online and sell a lot of things online. But the market research you get when you are actually in person with people is so invaluable that you just don't get that same level online. People are not really bothering. They will like it. They will comment. But they won't give you the same kind of detailed feedback you can get in those conversations. So the more you can get out there and talk to customers or prospects, and the more you learn, the faster you're going to grow and really understand why people are responding to your art the way that they are. I totally agree. And and it will. It's almost like a focus group without even you know, sharing a focus group. You know, that's what's occurring. And I think if you can have that without asking the question specifically, but you're going to hear from people. And then people have asked me, why did you write the book? And I said, a lot of it was this Q&A that I would get over the years when I was out speaking about how and why I created Hint. People would ask these questions and I would literally go back to my hotel room and I started journaling. And I would take every comment that I could remember and I would start thinking about it and I would start journaling about them. I wouldn't be defensive. I would start sharing stories about, you know, what were the answers? Why were, what were my opinions about these things? And that was ultimately what became my book. And I think that that's the thing that an artist can do as well. I think it's important to listen to what people say, but then process it for a while and really understand is there some grain of truth and what this person who I immediately wanted to discount what they were saying, maybe there's something there and really take it. Don't let them ruin your day. Think about what they've said and say, huh, that's really interesting because this my favorite entrepreneur out there, Steve Jobs used to say that the dots eventually connect, right? That there's a little bit of grains of truth in what lots of people say. Kara, you named your book Undaunted. Why is that the title of your book as the overarching message to the reader? Like, what does that mean to you? I think being undaunted is a very purposeful statement, right? It's a decision that you make. You don't have to live undaunted. You can just continue to go on and do what you're doing. You can create art, take it into galleries and, and go through that process and feel rejection and get hurt and maybe stop what you're doing whatever along the way. Or what you can do is make that decision to live undaunted and understand that you're going to have fears. You're going to have people that don't like what you do. You're going to have challenges, mostly inside of yourself initially of being you know, daunted and, and having those doubts as well. But when you put a stake in the ground and say, no, I'm going to go and try, And I'm going to go and see what I'm going to learn and satisfy my curiosity. That is a very, very powerful statement. People have asked me for years, have you always been fearless? Have you always been relentless or resilient? And I think that the more times you lead undaunted, it doesn't always turn out the way that you want. Maybe you you go and start something. I mean, I I'm still the CEO of of Hint. I mean, I can name a million examples of this where you head down a road 
and you think, ah, things aren't really working. Maybe we should go left. You don't continue to make the same mistake twice, but you learn and you learn from those challenges. And that's okay because the next time that you go do something hard, you know, you can take it on. It really is part of a bigger journey. You know, in many ways, as my mom used to think about art, it's a continuation. I mean, she would have tons of pieces of art around the house. Nothing was ever finished. It was a puzzle to her that it was just constantly evolving over time. We didn't know what she was doing or what she was thinking. And then she'd come back to things. And I think that that's the same way about living undaunted, that you just keep trying and keep building on it. That's a beautiful place for us to wrap up. Pick up a bottle of Hint, drinkhint.com. Yes. And on Amazon and stores all over. But I do have to say my favorite goodie that she sent me was the sunscreen. So there is the sunscreen. It's also called Hint. I read in the book there was pineapple, but what I got was the pear. It was so good. And it actually helped me understand the product. Like, oh, it's just, I'm going to sound like I'm getting paid to do this, which I can promise you I am not. It was like just this hint of pear. And I smell so good. I don't, I don't feel sticky. And it feels so nice. And this is, I was so happy when I put it on. It was like so awesome. So we've included links to the book and her website in the show notes. It's shulmanart.com forward slash 152. And don't forget to check out my pricing workshop. If you have doubts and drama around pricing your art, well, this is the training that you need to gain confidence in marketing your art at the right prices. So to learn more, go to shulmanart.com forward slash workshop. Alrighty, Kara, do you have any last words for my listeners before we call this podcast complete? More than anything, I think just believe in yourself and know that it's up to you to go out and live undaunted and go up and try. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with me here. All right, my friend, thank you for being with us today. We will see you the same time, same place next week. Stay inspired. Thank you for listening to the Inspiration Place podcast. Connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash shulmanart, on Instagram at shulmanart, and of course, on shulmanart.com. 